It's the Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. This is Roger Stone, and we're back at the Roger Stone Show. Don't touch that dial. Now would be an excellent time for you to go to the App Store and get the 77 WABC radio app. That way you won't miss any of the amazing programming we have here at 77 WABC. A big week in the courts uh, uh, over the last 10 days, actually. The Colorado case, which is uh, a case pertaining to Donald Trump's eligibility to be on the ballot, uh, was argued uh, before the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, And Trump's critics are not very happy. That's because uh, Trump's lawyer uh, did an extraordinary job. Now, the the nut of this case uh, is an argument, which is a false narrative, uh, that Donald Trump is not eligible to be on the ballot because he, quote, engaged uh, in an insurrection. Yet he's not charged with insurrection. Uh, Jack Smith, uh, the special counsel, certainly has the authority uh, and certainly examined the events of January 6th. He has charged him with other crimes but he has not charged him specifically with the crime of insurrection. The 14th Amendment, Article 3, uh, not only would, uh, I think, require a conviction uh, of insurrection, but additionally, it goes on to say that the act only refers to officers of the United States. Well, under a 1998 Supreme Court decision, the president and the vice president are specifically not officers of the United States. Uh, This is really a blatantly anti-democratic move. Uh, And all those states that have had lawsuits seeking to remove Trump from the ballot will essentially ultimately be guided here by what the U.S. Supreme Court says. Uh, Joining us today will be Trump impeachment lawyer David Schoen. To me, he is the single smartest lawyer uh, I've ever met, Uh, and he has thought about these issues very extensively. Uh, He makes a pretty good case that although the president's lawyers did a pretty good job, they missed a number of key arguments uh, in that presentation before the Supreme Court. Then, of course, you have also the ongoing question uh, of presidential immunity. Uh, This has not been as successful for the president. For those who may not remember, uh, Trump raised the question at the trial court level in D.C., saying that he had absolute immunity uh, for any act uh, that he performed as president. The the special counsel made a motion to, uh, after the court ruled against him, the special counsel made a motion to skip the appeals court and take it directly to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, He was widely criticized for that. Mr. Smith uh, was attacked really by the editorial pages of the New York Times, even on CNN. His his need for speed is obvious uh, in terms of the political motivations for having a trial before Election Day. Uh, The Supreme Court refused to take that matter, saying that it had to go first to the D.C. Court of Appeals. Now, that Trump lost in the D.C. Court of Appeals is not even remotely surprising. It is 
one of the most politicized uh, and uh, liberal courts in the country. Uh, actually, I would say partisan courts in the country. But I do think Trump's lawyer, uh, uh, Mr. Sauer of Missouri, uh, made an epic mistake when a minute and 58 seconds into his presentation, one of the three judges on the panel asked him whether if Trump had SEAL Team 6 uh, murder his political opponent uh, and then had SEAL Team 6 uh, assassinate any U.S. senator who uh, wanted to impeach Trump over that action, uh, would he have immunity? First of all, a good trial lawyer knows you don't answer hypothetical questions, but then secondarily, rather than saying, well, presidential immunity would only apply in the event of official acts within his capacity as president, uh, Mr. Sauer told the court that his answer was a qualified yes, wrong answer. Uh, this is uh, obviously uh, a more crucial issue than the Colorado ballot issue, in my opinion. I also understand the politics of the Supreme Court. These, they have become unduly political, so I can see them ruling for Trump uh, on the ballot access issue, uh, but are then ruling uh, against him on the question of immunity. That would clear the way for a trial in D.C., uh, on the events regarding the events of January 6th, uh, we shall see. This is a long and tortured road. Uh, it remains clear from the results of the Nevada primaries uh, last Thursday that Donald Trump uh, swept all 26 delegates and got 97% of the vote, but also, folks, the turnout was heavy for the caucuses. So there was a preferential primary last Tuesday. Uh, you may have seen Nikki Haley ran in that, uh, and more people voted essentially for none of the above than voted for Nikki Haley. It was almost two to one. Uh, that was what we call a beauty contest. It didn't award any delegates. There was no reason to compete. But then Haley did not compete in the Thursday Nevada Republican primary, uh, pardon me, the Nevada Republican caucuses in which actual delegates uh, were selected. It was a smashing victory for Trump. I sat back and lit up a big cigar from MyPatriotCigars.com, a sponsor of this show, one of our advertisers. By the way, these are great cigars, folks. Check them out at MyPatriotCigars.com and be sure to use promo code STONE when you do. Now, uh, if you're thinking about getting a flu shot, well, you may want to think twice about that. Dr. Jane Ruby joins us on the show today to tell us what she has found out about uh, the next generation of flu shots and about her experience during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, that will be uh, a, a, a terrific piece uh, for the show. I think you're going to really enjoy it. Uh, my friend Tucker Carlson, uh, really in a tour de force, uh, first of all, demonstrating by uh, interviewing Vladimir Putin uh, on his X platform and at Tucker Carlson Media, uh, that the old media is dead. Uh, it is estimated that he will have uh, as many as one billion viewers 
for this epic interview. We're going to talk about the interview later in the show. In the meantime, I'm Roger Stone. This is The Roger Stone Show, and, well, we'll be right back. We're back on The Roger Stone Show right here at 77 WABC Radio. Uh, I am really privileged today because my guest is David Schoen, to my mind, one of the most brilliant, incisive, creative, and strategic attorneys in the country. Uh, David Schoen uh, represented President Donald Trump in one of his two impeachment trials, uh, in which I thought, frankly, he was brilliant. Uh, he has received degrees from George Washington University, uh, where he got his Bachelor of Arts, Boston College of Law, uh, where in the law school he's a Juris Doctor, and then, of course, the Columbia University Law School as a Master of Laws. It is my great privilege to have David Schoen uh, on The Roger Stone Show. David, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's my privilege to be here. Thank you very much. So uh, a tumultuous uh, week for President uh, Donald Trump uh, in the courts, uh, actually a tumultuous two weeks. Uh, it's hard to know where to start. Uh, last weekend here on the Roger Stone Show, we talked about whether this presidential election was going to be decided at the ballot box or in the courts. The courts are <laughs> clearly going to play a, a key role here. A great uh, interview with the independent journalist uh, Matt Taibbi. Uh, let's start with the ballot access matter uh, before the courts, specifically the Colorado case, but it's emblematic of numerous uh, attempts in numerous states to prevent uh, Donald Trump's name from appearing on the ballot. Now, in your practice, uh, one of the things you have specialized in is ballot access, not necessarily for Republicans. You have represented uh, Democrats, uh, socialists, minor party candidates. In America, everybody's entitled to representation, folks. And David Schoen is a zealous advocate uh, on behalf of his clients. Uh, tell us, David, what you thought about the arguments before the U.S. Supreme Court regarding, uh, regarding Donald Trump's ballot access in Colorado. Well, it's a fascinating case, frankly, and uh, some of the amicus briefs that were filed uh, are actually well worth reading, uh, far more than the party's briefs, I would say. Um, but uh, I think, you know, I said before the case was argued that I think it's a slam dunk. It should be a 9-0 decision for President Trump. Um, I certainly felt that way after the arguments could be one. You never know how the votes are going to go, but it's certainly going to be a win for President Trump. Um, the lawsuits never should have been brought. There, these lawsuits in Colorado and elsewhere are primarily sponsored by this group crew with Norm Eisen and his crowd behind it. Trump haters, people who are obsessed with keeping Trump off the ballot, no matter uh, what the cost is. Um, I think they harken back to a statement Jerry Nadler made in, con in the context of uh, considering impeachment against President Trump, in which he said, uh, we can't rely on the voters. We can't trust the voters to, uh, to put President Trump out. And so we, from that, they decided to use these extra ballot, extra um, uh, ordinary procedure measures to try to, you know, attack President Trump. Norm Eisen and his crew is obsessed with it. They've written a model prosecution memo for just about all of the prosecutions against him, including a memo uh, demanding that the Justice Department charge him with insurrection in D.C., which, of course, they didn't and couldn't 
and couldn't even meet the low threshold of probable cause for grand, before a grand jury. And that's why I say, uh, among other reasons, Colorado case was frivolous, never should have been brought. It's an embarrassment to the Colorado Supreme Court justices who ruled against President Trump. Um, the issues are very clear. Um, and what I would say about the argument yesterday was uh, I saw a piece today that Alan Dershowitz wrote in which he said uh, President Trump's going to win the Colorado case despite his lawyers um, found their arguments inept. Uh, I would say that, you know, they they were enough so that they didn't undercut. They didn't steal uh, their feet from the jaws of victory, put it that way. But there are some fascinating issues in the case that really weren't discussed at length yesterday and should have been. Uh, the NBC a legal analyst, of course, uh, doesn't agree uh, with your view and the view of Dershowitz. Uh, I read a brilliant piece that you wrote in which you made a case that there were a number of key arguments that could have been made before the Supreme Court, uh, but weren't. Why don't you tell us about that? Well, I can tell you in a nutshell. First of all, the textual arguments that are made, that is, whether the uh, Section 3 of the amendment uh, covers a president or a vice president, and whether a president is actually an officer, the language used in Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, are fascinating arguments. And I think President Trump has the better side of that. I think, for example, uh, the legislative history supports the idea that president was not intended to be included in the bar that Section 3 presents. Um, it was included in an earlier draft, and then it was deleted. Um, and I think there's good reason for that. The time, at the time this section was passed, there was concerned about Confederate concern about Confederate operatives getting in office. That concern was a regional one, and therefore, president and vice president, two national offices uh, elected across the country, weren't a concern uh, because the, the Confederates would be filtered out from those. I think that makes sense. There are two cases, 1888 and 2010, that say one's called U.S. versus Moat, one's called Free Enterprise Fund, that say a president is not an officer because it says that. Um, officers refer to appointed people, not elected people. So I think those arguments are great. But there are other sides to those arguments. What there's no other side to is the following. The Amendment 14, Section 3, has no process whatsoever. It just says somebody, you know, engaged in insurrection or rebellion can't hold office. They, uh, well, I'll get back to that in one second. But anyway, in 1869... Supreme Court Justice Salmon Chase sat on a case called in Griffin's case in which the issue came up. And what he concluded was this amendment language is not self-executing, meaning there has to be federal legislation that actually allows you to use this section to bar someone from office. That's consistent with Section 5 of the 14th Amendment also, which suggests that there can be legislation to effectuate these things. So if that's the case and there has to be federal legislation, uh, there are two answers. Either there is no federal legislation, and therefore it can't be used, or there is federal legislation, and that's the insurrection statute, 18 U.S.C. 2383, that decidedly was not used to charge President Trump, and for which President Trump has never been charged or convicted and couldn't be. If he had been charged with that federal legislation that one would argue was to give life to this section of the um, amendment, then he would have been entitled to all of these safeguards, constitutional guarantees that the Fifth and Sixth Amendments give. That right to a public trial, right to a jury trial, right to confrontation, right to call witnesses. 
all kinds of due process that's found incorporated in the 14th Amendment itself. Um, and he would have been titled to a burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Here in the amendment, we have absolutely no process. It doesn't tell you who's supposed to decide. Is it to be decided by this non-lawyer Secretary of State in Maine or a single elected judge in Colorado or a group of elected judges? What's the burden of proof for finding insurrection? In the Colorado case, they relied on the January 6th committee report, which they found reliable. That's absurd. That was a sham committee, improperly appointed, broke rule after rule of the House rules, had no ranking minority member for safeguard, and on and on and on. So that wasn't something to rely on. What rules of evidence applied? So we see there was no due process. And I say you don't have to look any further than the 14th Amendment itself to find this. And if you go on the other, the other way, Griffin's case is wrong, and there doesn't have to be federal legislation, it's self-executing, you have the same problem. We can't have one state deciding here's the process, and we're going to kick off a candidate for president, which would skew the election around the country for other states. The United States Supreme Court spoke about the state interest in a national election in 1983 in the landmark case, John Anderson versus Celebrezzi out of Ohio. And the Supreme Court said a state has a lesser interest in a national election because the matter it's affecting has an impact across other state borders. And it's not fair to have one state have that kind of um, that kind of impact. And that's what one of the justices, even Justice Kagan, asked about yesterday. You know, how can we allow one state to have this kind of impact? So that, I think, ought to be a consensus argument, the process argument across the board for every civil libertarian uh, who should care about what kinds of rights, whether your name is Trump or otherwise, the process that we're entitled to before we stop a candidate for running from pres for president or we stop a voter from exercising his or her First and Fourteenth Amendment rights to vote for a candidate of choice. But David, what baffled me, however, is the president's lawyers seem to be arguing that this constitutional provision, while it, it, it shouldn't bar him from being on the ballot, that it could bar him from actually holding the office, uh, which yeah. A, doesn't seem right to me, and B, I'm not sure why you would make that argument anyway. Uh, theoretically, he could now go on the ballot, win the election, uh, and then face litigation over this same matter this, with this same argument. Yeah, that's what I, I was waiting for one of the justices to say to them, is this really what you want? Is this what you think President Trump wants? You want us to come up with a ruling that the reason the Colorado case is overturned is because the language of, the, of Section 3 bars a person from holding office but not from being on the ballot. Therefore, he can be on the ballot and win, but then he could be barred from holding office. I, I was shocked that President Trump's lawyers would have made that argument. It's a textually sound argument. You can make the argument from the text, but a good lawyer knows to distinguish between every argument that's available and the arguments that are appropriate that you want to use to win. First of all, a consensus argument is the best way to go ever with the Supreme Court that everybody can agree on and allows them to avoid some difficult questions. But in this case, you can just imagine if that argument prevailed, then you would see after the election, President Trump wins, all of the blue states would move, move immediately to bar him from becoming president. And they would cite his own lawyer uh, who said, well, actually, the amendment bars you from from uh, holding office uh, and therefore we'll have to revisit that. In fact, during the during the argument yesterday, 
you know, he suggested at some point, I think in, in answer to Justice Gorsuch, but I'm not, I don't remember if that's exactly what it was, that you know, that's something that would have to be considered down the road because maybe uh, the Congress would, because there's a provision, you know, for Congress to uh, remove this impediment, maybe the Congress would act in. There's no way on earth President Trump would have approved that kind of argument if he had been told it was being made and understood those, uh, the impact of it. And he's a very savvy guy. David, have you had an opportunity to read Special Counsel Robert Hur's uh, report regarding President Joe Biden's retention of classified and top secret documents? I'm familiar with it. I haven't read every page of it, but I'm familiar with the highlights, that's for sure. Uh, and and those us- highlights clearly were mis- misconstrued last night in President Biden's uh, uh, representation of them. Uh, both his representation, but also in a blistering statement put out by the office uh, of the White House legal counsel, essentially trying to re- rewrite the facts. Uh, this is not about disrespecting the memory of Joe Biden's late son, Bo Biden. Uh, they use that as a political shield. Of course. How dare they ask about that? Uh, but it yeah. was also interesting to me that the author that Biden was working with who had been given access to these classified documents for a book, destroyed all of his tapes when he learned that there was going to be an investigation. That's a destruction of evidence. I would have thought that that would have merited a prosecution, but uh, evidently not. This is once again the the two-tiered justice system. Yeah, we, we see this double standard time and time again. And of course, this you know, trying to turn things around with President Biden crying on the stage last night and all of that and trying to make this about whether he remembered his son's death and what he does every Memorial Day and all that. That's a classic, you know, sort of uh, shifting manner of argumentation and all that. But I I don't know that anybody bought it. Of course, it's a tragic thing that his son died, but that's not what this is about. And the report makes it quite clear that this wasn't sort of just a momentary lapse. This was, you know, an ongoing pattern during that interview, and he kind of missed it by years. All right, we're going to take a quick commercial break, and then we'll be right back with uh, Trump impeachment lawyer and criminal defense attorney David Schoen. All right, folks, we're back. It's the Roger Stone Show. If you're just tuning in, we're here with David Schoen. Uh, To my mind, one of the most brilliant incisive, creative, and strategic attorneys uh, in the country. Uh, We're talking about the events of the last several weeks uh, pertaining to American politics and both Joe Biden and uh, Donald Trump. Uh, David, we also had, uh, not uh, that many days ago, uh, arguments uh, in the uh, D.C. appeals court uh, in which uh, Trump's lawyers uh, made what I thought was a uh, a less than stellar argument regarding his right to presidential immunity. Now, uh, based on my study of this, if in fact the Supreme Court now, which we assume will hear that case, Trump has now lost at the trial court level, has lost at the appeals court level. Uh, if the Supreme Court hears that uh, and were to wipe away presidential immunity, it would seem to me that President Barack Obama could be prosecuted for 
using drones in the, uh, the murder of American citizens or conducting warrantless and illegal searches of, oh, I don't know, Tucker Carlson and uh, James Rosen of Fox News, who was under surveillance when he was covering the Obama White House. Uh, case goes. Well, I- I'm concerned that the Supreme Court might not take it, frankly. Uh, it's a very long, detailed opinion. And they may not want to wade into this quagmire. Um, to be clear, the case essentially says there is no categorical uh, immunity or immunity, uh, a categorical immunity for from criminal prosecution, uh, even for official action. Uh, so it differs from the earlier case of Nixon versus Fitzgerald, which said that there is civil immunity from civil lawsuits for a president um, for c- official acts taken during the uh, term in office, even once that president is out of office, as President Nixon was when that case came through the pipeline. Um, it's a, it can be a very dangerous opinion, this opinion, uh, for reasons you've pointed out. Um, uh, Nixon could have been prosecuted for Vietnam decisions, LBJ, same thing, Vietnam decisions, if you know, someone decides that this constituted a war crime, even though it was an official action. And so I do think there's a very real uh, problem of chilling important and decisive presidential action here when it's limited to the official acts. But I have to say this again, you know, it's very easy to be an armchair critic of other lawyers. But, uh, you know, I think most reasonable commentators said this at the time. There is a problem when you come in and make extreme arguments that are not necessary to your thesis um, or to winning the case. And that's how I felt about. Mr. Sauer's argument that uh, to the hypothetical question the judge asked, what, well, how about if uh, the president, while acting as president, called in SEAL Team 6 to conduct a hit on a political opponent? And his answer was, oh, yes, the same theory applies. Um, you couldn't charge him criminally unless he were impeached and convicted, which is kind of a, a, a well, really roundabout argument because it, it requires a negative inference from the impeachment uh, language in the, in the Constitution, um, and uh, this theory that, that that's required first before uh, there can be a criminal prosecution. The simple answer to that was, that's not an official act. And then you can stay consistent with the theme that it's official acts that are covered by civil and criminal immunity. Um, that's a very logical and reasonable theory. I felt the same thing yesterday, quite frankly, when... The, one of the justices said, well, you know, you say we don't know about proving insurrection. What if an, a person walked in and said, hi, I'm an insurrectionist. Um, hi, I'm an insurrectionist. Now, could that person be barred from holding office? And the answer was, uh, no, Congress would first have to act. I don't think that's necessarily the answer to that, and it's not a necessary answer to it. Um, it can be that... Uh, there's a process for this. And when a person admits to being an insurrectionist, then we're not worried about the burden of proof and so on. That person could be barred from holding office under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. That's a reasonable answer to that without taking an extreme position. Again, I don't think anything they said yesterday or could have said yesterday is going to steal uh, defeat from the jaws of victory. President, President Trump will win this case, as I've told him over and over again, uh, just about no matter what. It's a frivolous case. But anyway, the point is, I don't think that we need to make extreme arguments when the law and the facts are on our side, 
and we have reasonable arguments that can win. Uh, David, uh, in the time we have left, uh, former Attorney General Ed Meese has filed an amicus brief with the U.S. Supreme Court in which he argues uh, that Special Counsel Jack Smith's appointment is flawed, that it is not uh, legally valid uh, because uh, he was not a sitting U.S. attorney. His appointment uh, has uh, never been approved by the U.S. Senate. Uh, I'm bastardizing this. Uh, tell us what the argument is uh, and uh, whether you think it has any potential impact uh, on the situation. Well, this is another fascinating argument. Um, I, I love it, frankly. Um, I think it's, again, uh, technically and textually sound. There's a, an excellent law review article on it uh, called Why Robert Mueller's Appointment as Special Counsel Was Unlawful. Two scholars, Steve Calabrese and Gary Lawson, wrote in 2019 that explain this in detail. But essentially, Article 2, Section 2, Clause 2 of the Constitution it's called the Appointments Clause, and that tells us how uh, officers in the government in, are appointed. We have superior officers, inferior officers, and so on. The point that these authors make, and I think they're right, this is the argument, it's kind of a three-part argument, that there's no statute in place originally uh, to give rise to um, this office of special counsel properly constituted. Um, secondly, that even if that's not a problem for you, that uh, whether he's an inferior officer to special counsel, uh, that the appointment process wasn't authorized for that. And clearly they say he's not an inferior officer. He's a superior officer, can only be authorized by presidential appointment um, and confirmation by the Senate, and that that was never done. Um, these regulations for special counsel giving rise to this kind of iteration uh, were put together by Neil Cadiel, who you now see on MSNBC and who's been for days saying what a slam dunk the Colorado case was for Colorado and there are no arguments on the other side and so on, is now blaming the lawyers and blaming the justices for why it looks like they're going to lose. But anyway, put these regulations in. And the point of these uh, scholars are is that uh, the special counsel is simply not uh, properly appointed as a matter of law, and therefore Jack Smith's or Mueller's actions are unconstitutional, and the indictments that he brought cannot stand. The problem is, right now, in the D.C. case, which is kind of in the fore of discussion, the issue was never raised. And the, uh, the Court of Appeals, this is extraordinary, the Court of Appeals, D.C. Circuit, wrote to the lawyers ahead of time and said, I want you to be, be prepared to discuss the issues raised in the Meese amicus brief, the issue you just raised, that the special counsel, Jack Smith, was not properly appointed. When asked to do so, Mr. Sauer said, in arguing for President Trump, well, uh, we haven't raised that argument uh, so far in this case. That was pretty shocking, since I think the president was under the impression that the, ar the argument uh, was, should have been raised and was raised. But now we see in the opinion from the D.C. Circuit denying the immunity claim, on the last page they write in a footnote that this argument was raised by the court, it was in the Mies brief, and unfortunately it was never raised in the district court. And it's not before this court. And therefore, even if they could consider it on appeal as a collateral order, they can't because there's no argument raised below by the by President Trump uh, to, to even consider by the district court or the court of appeals. So we'll see. It's got to be raised in the Florida case also. 
Uh, I'm very familiar with the argument. In my particular case, a witness the government wanted to testify, a fellow who had worked for me, Andrew Miller, had his own counsel, obviously, did not want to testify. Uh, he raised this issue. The trial court, of course, a trial court judge, of course, rejected it. He took it to the D.C. Court of Appeals. They also rejected it. Uh, he did not appeal to the Supreme Court, but it was immaterial. Uh, he was never called to testify at my trial. I don't know of anything he could have said that would have been uh, meaningful or detrimental or helpful to the government's case either for that fact. But it seems to me that the D.C. court would just point uh, to uh, that decision in that circuit and say this has already been decided here, no? Well, Judge Howell, who was then the chief, uh, chief judge in the district court, wrote a lengthy opinion uh, denying uh, this claim in a case um, it was working its way up in another defendant's case, but it got uh, derailed. And the D.C. Circuit just summarily kind of affirmed Judge Howell. These scholars consider all of that, and they say she was just wrong, uh, number one. Number two, it has to be fully developed. And number three, in the Florida case, you've got the 11th Circuit, not the D.C. Circuit. They're not bound by it. And again, they I'm telling you, this is a multi-multi-page article in careful detail by two careful scholars spelling this out. All right. Thank you very much. Unfortunately, we are out of time. I want to thank David Schoen, a criminal defense attorney uh, and a brilliant analyst who what is that rare lawyer who understands the intersection of both law, media, politics uh, and the public arena. David, thank you so much for joining us on The Roger Stone Show. Thank you. Always a great show. Thank you very much.